The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. As a whole, I hope it doesn't describe too many of you in here, but it definitely describes much of the landscape of the world that we live in. Would we all agree, amen? That is the world that we live in. But in the book of Nehemiah, we're going to see over time, and especially tonight, that there are two ideas regarding human flourishing that are presented over and over and over, whether subtly or blatantly, throughout the book of Nehemiah. The first one is this. God's idea of human flourishing happens when we put our will, our want, our need, behind God's will, God's wants, and God's needs. When we choose to put ourselves in a position of glad submission rather than accentuating our own preferences and our our own wants, it doesn't mean that the things we want, that, that we can't want anything. I think sometimes people hear that because they'll hear pastors talk about the fact that it's not about you, it's about God, and you need to die to self and all those things. Look, God created the creation around us. God desires to bless his children, and many of the desires that we have in our heart might be God-given desires. It's okay to have desires. The difference is our own desires, our own will, our own ideas are not to be primary. Does that make sense? Our will is not primary. God's will becomes primary. And God says human flourishing occurs when man happily and joyfully submits to God's will first. And we'll see this as it plays out. Uh, The second thing is this, is that men and women, um, human flourishing occurs when you pursue joy, not happiness. And there's a difference. You can be happy in a moment, but happiness is fleeting. Um, And let's use the car example. You ever been driving somewhere? There's a great song on the radio. You're tapping your feet. You're singing along. The windows are up because none of you want anybody to know it's like Justin Bieber or Katy Perry. But you're rocking out, having a great time. Someone pulls out in front of you and like that, can't your mood change so fast? Happens in an instant. Well, happiness is fleeting. It's situational. Happiness depends on what's going on in the given moment. It's, it's based on moods, which can be all over the place. Happiness is very situational and dependent on what's going on. Joy's different. When you look at Paul in prison singing, that's joy. Does that mean that Paul was happy to be in jail? No. He's not superhuman. Paul's a human, just like we are. And Paul's honest in Corinthians about the difficulty of his struggles. He brings up in prison of an example of something he didn't want to go through, but he did what? For the joy of the gospel being spread to other places. So when he sat in prison and was still worshiping, don't think that he was happy to be there. If God had told him, okay, Paul, it's time to go, he would have happily left. But he found joy that superseded even his circumstances because his hopes were based in God, not in the circumstances going on around him. I mean, in our day and age, especially, let's say, in the early 2000s or so, you could find a lot of economic happiness, right? But you didn't find a lot of economic joy when 2008 rolled around, right? Because it's situational, it changed. But what you could find is people who had their hope in God who were still joyful in spite of the fact that maybe even they lost everything. And you guys know people like that. You've met people in the hospital with that. People that had cancer and still had joy and you couldn't figure that out. That's not happiness, that's joy. So we'll break a lot of that down as we go, but you really can do the difference. This week in particular, for, I haven't done a funeral in a long time and now I'm doing two this week. 
It's really strange. We do weddings here all the time, but our, con- our congregation in general is skews a lot younger overall, and so we haven't done a lot of funerals, but now I'm doing two this week. And in the meetings I've had with different people, none of the stories I hear from them as they talk about their loved one have anything to do with a situational happiness. It's always a deep-seated joy, a joy that even the things, they'll say things like, even when we were poor, he just loved us and we just had a great time together and we just, was that, that's more like joy. That's something that's deeper than the circumstances that are going on. And never do you go to a memorial service and hear people talk about happiness. You hear them talk about joy. Pay attention next time. You'll, you'll see what I'm talking about there. So, so this is what we're going to be talking about some tonight, the idea of what does human flourishing look like? What really makes for a human flourishing and how can we flourish? What does the Bible have for us in that? So with that being in mind, let me give you a brief historical background to the book of Nehemiah also. Um, the book of Nehemiah, this deals with the people of Israel, as most of the Old Testament does. Um, but in particular, it's in a very troubling time for the people of Israel. Now, Israel, you could say, kind of hit its peak around the time of David and Solomon. King David, you guys know, the guy, he was a shepherd boy um, who replaces Saul as king. Saul was the people's king, but not God's king, and Saul ended up being a total train wreck. And so David, just this little insignificant shepherd boy, so insignificant that when, when they're coming to his house to say, we're going to anoint the next king, gather your sons, dad doesn't even think to invite David. He invites all the other sons but David. And when this isn't the guy, the, the Lord has said, this isn't the guy, that you, clearly you have one more son yet. Oh, that's right, David in the field, I forgot, go get that guy. Like totally insignificant kind of guy. But the Lord raises him up to become king of Israel, and after all sorts of drama with Saul and running for his life and all this, the kingdom is eventually established, and David is a really successful king. He has great moral failure at times and all those things for sure, but the nation overall enters into a period of peace and security and prosperity that they had not seen before. I mean, you've got the, the Philistines constantly trying to win, and David's constantly smashing him, and, and the enemies of Israel were always kept at bay, and there was peace and security around the people. And even when invaders came, David was able to rescue. You think of uh, 1 Samuel 20 or 2 Samuel 20, and, and there's just so many things. But David established this monstrous kingdom. And then as David's rule goes on to end, his son takes over, whose name is Solomon. And Israel moves into even greater peace and prosperity during Solomon's time. You have the temple is built and God sends his spirit, like the, the presence of God is in the temple and, and the, the nation is just growing and growing in wealth and Solomon is famous for his wisdom and again, peace and security among all its borders. But if you read really carefully in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's this one little thing said, and I'll paraphrase it, that seems to show that there's a sign of problems to come. Uh, Solomon says something, and this is rough paraphrasing here. He says something like, what good does it do if you have all the wealth in the world but your children are morons? <laughs> and the idea is this. You're amassing this big fortune. You're amassing this giant wealth, but you're about to leave it to these idiots. And you get this idea like, uh-oh, something's not right in the Solomon household. And so sure enough, as Solomon goes on, and Solomon's sons are there, battles erupt for the throne, and the nation of Israel is split. So you end up in this complete, disastrous situation where the once united people of God are now, there's, there's a, a crevice between them, if you will. There is the northern kingdom of, how many of you remember? Israel is the northern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom, and this is, I mean, this is, honestly, this is what it would have been like if the south, for example, had won the civil war. 
You, you have a nation that was once united that is now divided. Two sets of kings, two sets of governments, two sets of ideals. This is what's going on in Israel during this time. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, um, you have, they don't, it doesn't go so well for them. If you read through the history, they have wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. There is no success. It's a train wreck after train wreck after train wreck. And the next thing you know, in, uh, I want to say 722, yes, 722 B.C., the Assyrians lay siege on the kingdom of northern Israel, scatters the Jewish people, carries many of them off into slavery, and they're no longer even in their own territory anymore. This is the judgment that, if you remember, we just finished the book of Amos. This is the judgment that Amos was telling the people that was coming. So, wicked king, wicked king, wicked king, judgment comes, the Assyrians come, wipe everything out, and the northern kingdom is eradicated. Now, the southern kingdom is known as the kingdom of what? Judah. The southern kingdom is the kingdom of Judah. So, when we speak of Jesus as being the lion of the tribe of Judah, this is where we're talking about Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom, okay? So, in the southern kingdom... They fare a little bit better. Maybe it's kind of, maybe the South just has a way of doing that. Bible Belt South, maybe, like our country, I don't know. But they, have a, they do a little bit better. They have good king, wicked king, good king, wicked king. Brent smiling back there. The South does better. Good king, wicked king, good king, wicked king. None were from Georgia. Don't get cocky, Brent. Anyway, <clears throat> so it's, it goes well for a while, but eventually their fate's the same. And about 136 years later, they are also wiped out, but this time by the Babylonians. The people are carried off into exile, the remnants are scattered all over the world, and Israel no longer exists. And so the result of this now, people are scattered, Israel's not even there. Now, about, I don't know, sometime later, I don't even know the exact date, doesn't matter, come the Persians. And the Persian Empire comes along and they decide, let's take over the world, and they kind of do. And they end up in charge of everything. Okay, so the Persian Empire comes, um, and then you, you can read about it, you probably won't, but in Second Chronicles, um, it tells the story of how when the Persian Empire was in charge, um, there was a king named Cyrus. He was the king of Persia, and he makes a decree that is prompted by the Holy Spirit. Whether he was submitted to him or not, God is sovereign, and he makes this decree, and he allows a remnant of the Jewish people to return back to Jerusalem where their homeland is. It's like, ah, let's throw the guys a bone, we'll let them go back to their land. And so a small remnant returns back to Jerusalem post-war. This place has been just obliterated and destroyed and ruined. It is not, it's not even like its former kingdom. It's like a wasteland at this point. It's destroyed. The temple has been torn to bits. Stones have been cast down into the valley. The wall of Jerusalem is gone. The city is absolutely destroyed. And these people come back to Jerusalem, and one of the first things they take on is they begin to rebuild what's the most important building to the Jewish people in Jerusalem? The temple. They begin to rebuild the temple. And you can learn about this in the book of, anyone? Ezra, in the back. Ezra is the story of this remnant of Jewish people rebuilding the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, at the same time that that's going on, goes this book of Nehemiah. In fact, in some biblical transcripts that date way, way back, there is no book of Ezra and book of Nehemiah. In some of them, not all of them, but in some of them, they're combined into one book. The books are still intact, every verse is there, but they're combined into one historical account because these two things basically tell the story of the rebuilding of Israel and certainly of Jerusalem, and these are events that are going on at the same time. This is what's going on here. So that's the historical background 
background. The Persians are in charge. Israel's a mess. There's a tiny remnant in Jerusalem trying to do some work, but things aren't going real well, and the nation is destroyed. Verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Man, I nailed that earlier, and I just blew it again. Oh, well. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, it's November, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah is in the Persian capital, some 800 miles away. And he says, hey, how are the Jewish people doing? The ones that survived and got to go back to Jerusalem, how are things going there? And he seeks to know how things are going, and he finds out they are not doing well. Verse 3, that remnant in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, we live in America and so we don't really understand the importance of gates. But, but that's a big, big, big deal at this particular time. To say that a city's gates have been destroyed means that this city is no longer in charge of its own destiny. It's sitting there ripe for the picking. It has no ability to protect itself, but it also has no ability to really even properly manage its own affairs because it is always in a reactionary or defensive posture to any band of marauders that might have to come by. Um, you, you can see this in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, a man without self-control is like a city that is broken into and left without walls. A man without self-control is like a city without walls. In other words, he has no ability to manage himself. He has no ability to control because anytime some urge comes by, anytime some temptation comes by, he has no ability to defend himself in it and it carries him away into who knows what. And that's what's going on in Jerusalem. They're trying to rebuild. They're trying to do something, but the city's destroyed. They have no ability to protect themselves and it's going to go nowhere without the walls. This is a really, really big deal. It's really hard for us to comprehend this now in our day. It's hard to even describe it because, like, I don't know about you guys, I live in a neighborhood in Central Point where, no joke, the police have come to my house at 10 o'clock at night, knocked on the door, and told me, hey, uh, you left your garage door open. You might want to put that down. Like, that's insane. I didn't even know that that happened, and they've actually done it. And we're not in some gated community or anything like that. Like, that's the kind of security we have, that there are people patrolling our streets that will even let me know if my garage door is up. Now, if you go to a place like, for example, Uganda, and I'm going to mention this a couple of times here, you find that it's very different. Because I've been to Uganda now five or six times. I've spent a lot of time there each time I go. And I, I got to tell you, it occurred to me today for the first time, maybe I should have thought this through, but if we were in Uganda and something went down, other than trying to get a hold of the U.S. Embassy, I don't know who I would call. I mean, there's no 911 in Uganda. So, so what do you do? Well, what we do when we stay in Uganda is there is a gated compound that we actually stay in. It's a safe place, but still, we stay in a place that the local university owns. It's got a whole lot of different housing, and there's a gate around it, and they actually hire a guard for us who patrols the courtyard all night while we sleep with a gun that, from what I have now learned, I hope this isn't totally true, but I've heard usually if you see Ugandan with a gun, they have one bullet. It's like Barney Fife or something, I don't know. But literally, like gas stations are guarded by guys with guns, but ammo is so rare that a lot of times they have one bullet. And so when people want to 
excuse me, come and rob gas stations, a lot of times they just charge and they go, if he fires off a shot, he might get one of us, but that's all he'll get. So next time we go, we're going to figure that out. But anyway, so we stay in an area, and, and there's a couple times we've stayed in a hotel, if you've been with us, yes, but it's gated with a guard as well. But, but we stay in this walled compound to be safe. And, and when you're in Uganda, you feel that. I mean, that's a relatively safe place, but you sort of feel it. And once night comes, you, you just have this kind of feeling like, yeah, I, don't, I should stay in here. It just, I don't know how to explain that. Here in our culture, we don't really understand that. Um, but in Uganda, it is. And, and even with regards to the police force, um, I, I've seen a man murdered in Uganda because he ran into someone else and killed them on a motorcycle. We've seen that with our own eyes. As we were driving, a taxi driver is what they call him, hit a man on a motorcycle. That man went down, cracked his head open on the pavement. There was blood everywhere. He was super dead. Like he was laying there. I mean, he was, don't laugh at me. He was, that's not funny. He was dead. But the scary part was that the driver of the taxi was so concerned and freaked out that he pulled over. And even our own driver was like, what is he doing? Why would you do that? And we're like, what are you talking about? And they're dragging this man. The people in that particular village are dragging this man out of the taxi and beating him to a pulp right there in front of us. And we're like, what, what's going to happen? They're like, well, that's village law. They'll kill him. He's dead. And he goes, that's why they tell you as a driver, if something like that happens, you drive two cities down, then go to a police station and say, this is what happened back there. But you don't stop in a town like this because they'll just take things into their own hands. They don't have the kind of security that we do. So our experience with security is very different from the rest of the world. So as we're reading the book of Nehemiah, don't face the temptation to think of them rebuilding the walls like, well, we got new property and we just want to fence it in to keep the deer out of our crops. Like this is life and death situation. It's a big deal. And there's going to be enemies attacking throughout the process. This is a huge deal that's going on here. So the city's in ruins. What's Nehemiah's response? Verse 4, don't worry, we're only going to verse 7. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah gets this word, and he fasts and prays and weeps for days. And the words that are here are like his spirit was overcome. Like to weep, it's like to gush in weeping, not just let me muster up a tear. Uncontrollable, this wrecked him. And, and here's what's amazing about this. He lives 800 miles away. He's the cupbearer to the king. He lives in unspeakable luxury. For a living, he drinks wine and eats food. That's what he does for a living. The best that the world has to offer, there in the Persian kingdom, he's drinking wine and eating food to make sure that that wine and that food is safe and fit for the king, and that's what he does. That's his job. He lives in unparalleled comfort, and yet news about a group of people he has never met in his life 800 miles away comes and affects him in such a way that it drops him to his knees in tears. How does, it, how does that happen? Now let's ask the question. When, when you see things in the Bible, before we jump to conclusions and go, we have to do that, you have to determine, is the Bible prescriptive or descriptive? So for example... When you read in the book, uh, when you read about Solomon, for example, that he had all of these wives and all of these concubines, is that descriptive or is that 
prescriptive. In other words, should we go, well, that's what Solomon did, therefore that's what the Bible's telling me to do. No, it is not prescriptive saying do this. It is descriptive about something that's going on. So in this text, is it prescriptive or descriptive that a man like Nehemiah, 800 miles away, completely out of touch with the struggling going on, should have that level of compassion and concern for brothers, his brothers, his nation, even though it's people he's never met, despite the fact that he lives in unparalleled prosperity. See, it's, this is hard for us. We're sort of in his situation. Now, we have issues, and we have our struggles, and all those kinds of things, but very few of us have ever been in a place in life where we've had to really worry about where our next meal was going to come from. Very few of us have ever been in that place. But those places exist all over the place. Um, Uganda, for example. There was a night when I was there with Jim Wright from Mountain Church, and, and we were there one night late just sitting up talking about stuff that was going on, and we started hearing this incredible screaming, just wailing and did not know, like it sounded like someone had been attacked and they're in trouble and something's going on. And so we're in a walled compound with a guard, but we convinced the guard to let us out. He's just outside the fence. We got to see what's going on. Something's wrong. The guard's like totally unconcerned at this noise. Like it was just this normal sound. And why are you guys so worked up? But this was our first actual trip to Uganda too. We're like, let us out. We can't just sit here and hear this. He opens the gate. We go running down the street and we find this crying. And it surprised us to find out that the crying was a child. Because I would have bet you anything. There's no way a child is capable of making that noise. But here's this little bitty boy, shorts only. It's pitch dark at night. No shirt, no shoes, tears just pouring down his face. And there's all these people, especially like teenagers and stuff like that, that are sort of walking around as if there's no big deal, and, and no one's paying him any attention. And he's standing there, no parents nearby, no nothing, just wailing. And so we finally get someone who speaks some English, and we're like, what's going on? Is he okay? Did something happen? And they're like, oh, no, he's just hungry. <laughs> it's just, oh, he's just hungry, it's just normal. I mean, if we heard that one time in one night, we would be calling DHS and parents would be prosecuted for child neglect. That's normal in Uganda. And so one of the problems with being as blessed as we are as a nation, and I am not ashamed of our blessing, they come from God, we should be thankful for God's gifts, amen? But one of the problems with it is that we can become so distant from the struggles that are going on out there that things don't affect us in the same way, they almost don't even feel real. But here's something we have to remember. Instead of allowing the blessings God has given us, either individually or should be as well as a nation as a whole, we need to understand that God doesn't bless us so that his blessings terminate on us. God blesses so that blessings flow through us to others who are in need. This is Israel's history. This is why Israel has been carried off into captivity during this period, because they have ignored the cry of the widow and the orphan. And you, got, you just studied Amos. You know about the ideas of human justice and all these kind of things that God has brought judgment on them for. And what happened is, Israel, who was the chosen people of God, they were chosen why? God says, I didn't choose you because you were so great or so mighty or so amazing. I chose you just based on grace. So they received God's favor and became the blessed people of God. But what happened is they went from God's favor to we are God's favorite. 
And the blessings of God stopped with them. And they just, the, the Bible even says that they became fat on the blessings that God gave them. And they had no answer or no ear for the needs and struggles of anyone else around them when God had chosen to use them as the people through whom all nations of the world would be blessed. It's Genesis 12. It's the original promise to Abraham. And, and this is the danger of living in the kind of culture that we live in, that we can become, whether we mean to or not, insulated from things that are going on in the rest of this world. This could have easily happened to Nehemiah, but this didn't happen. He hears about this need and he's floored. Well, what does the Bible say our attitude towards the suffering of others look like? We don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this. I know you guys went through some of this with Sam and Amos, but I'm going to read just a couple of verses. Zechariah 7 says, And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah and said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. God's word, hey, be fair, be merciful, be compassionate, and take care of those in need. That's what he says. Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, right there in the top of the list. Be compassionate. This is what God desires his people to be like. Not just Israel, but this is Colossians, New Testament stuff. The people of God. Um, In Galatians, we just saw uh, two weeks ago, bear one another's burdens, the scripture says. Um, You you guys know Jesus himself said, as you do for the least of these, giving a cup of cold water to a child, or, or he says, giving clothes to those who have none, or home to those who have none. What does he say? As you do to the least of these, you've done to... Me, he says. You're serving me as you serve them, Jesus says. And Romans 12 says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're to weep with those who weep. So let me ask you. There's a famous question early on in Genesis. I mean, really, the human history doesn't get very far. There's Adam and Eve and they have two kids and one of them kills the other. Didn't make it very far, did we? And so God comes to one and says, hey, uh, where's your brother? And what does he say? I don't know. And what's his famous line? Am I my brother's keeper? The first sibling rivalry, the first pair of siblings in all the Bible, the question is presented almost sarcastically to God. Am I my brother's keeper? But from that moment on throughout the rest of the scriptures, what is the resounding answer to that question? Yes! Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. Absolutely you are. That is why I bless you with health, that you may take care of those who struggle. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And and Let's take a gospel-centered even approach to this. We're heritage, gospel-centered church. That's our logo, right? What does that mean? That means how does the gospel inform what we do? Okay, what does the gospel say? The gospel says that we were what? Desperate, poor, and in need. And I don't mean just wealth. I mean in our position before God, our sin had isolated us from the kingdom of God, and we are desperate and poor and hopelessly in need. And Jesus is the one who incarnate himself into the world to take our problems on himself. Now listen, our sin was not Jesus' fault, right? Right? But he made our sin his responsibility. You understand that? Think of it from those turns. 
It was not his fault that we had been separated from God by our sin, but he made our situation his responsibility. And he rolled up his sleeves, if you will. He got dirty, if you will. He incarnate himself into our situation to help those of us who were in need. That's what the gospel says. So if that's the gospel, and as First Peter says that Jesus, even in his suffering, left an example for us to follow after, then what are we to do when we come across people who are in need? We are our brother's keeper. This is what we're called to. Look, we see this in all sorts of areas, um, even in the sports world. So I'm a, I'm a North Carolina basketball fan, and the North Carolina Tar Heels have this, this kind of Carolina family pride that they call it. They really pride themselves in it. It's something that Dean Smith, who just passed away, instituted, where they really look after one another. Like there's a fraternity, if you will, among them. And even guys who rode the bench 20 years ago would still get phone calls. In fact, there was this incredible story that came out after Dean Smith's death that some of the money from this trust that he had made with these big lucrative coaching contracts over the year, he had invested. And at his death, a check for $200 was submitted and sent to every trainer and every basketball player who had ever played for him in his entire career. Whether you're Michael Jordan, who did play for him, or Scott Cherry, bench player who no one's ever heard of, they all, after his death, just this year, got $200 checks. And in the memo section, it said, have dinner out on me. It was just this beautiful story of something that Coach Smith did. It's this 200 bucks, to most of them it meant nothing, but it was the idea that I still love you, we're still family, and we're still looking out for one another. And even within that kind of thing, and you can even see this in things like fraternities, there's this idea if a brother goes down or needs a job, we'll rally around him and we're going to help him, we're going to get him work, we're going to do whatever we can to look out because he's one of us, Right? If we can rally around something like a sports logo in a basketball team, then how much more should the body of Christ rally around one another's understanding what Jesus has done for us? Right? Shouldn't that just make absolute, total sense that if anyone on the planet should lead the charge in that kind of shepherding and being my brother's keeper, it would be the church? Amen? So this is what we're called to do. This is what... Nehemiah does. And so most of us, though, because of our situations in life or, or, or maybe because of where we are in discipleship or because of sin or whatever it is, probably most of us would say, okay, I agree. That's where I should be, but maybe I'm not there yet. Like I'll hear stories overseas and I hear some of the stories and it touches my heart, but I'm a, I'm a far cry from hearing news of a brother struggling overseas and it dropping me to my knees in tears and causing me to fast on their behalf. So how do we grow in that? If we agree that that's what the Bible has for us, if we agree that that's God's will for us and that that's what Jesus did on our behalf, then how, does, how do we do that? How do you manufacture that in the culture and climate that we live in when we, like, like Nehemiah, who's 800 miles away, which is a world apart in that day and age, where we might be a world apart from the terrors going on with regards to ISIS or whatever those kind of things, how do we grow in that? Well, verses five through seven show us really well. It says in verse five, and I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night before the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant, Moses." So here's how you do this. If you're writing notes, write this down. It's just two things and it's super important. 
If you want to grow in godly compassion, gospel-centered compassion and mercy, the kind of gospel-centered compassion and mercy that the Bible prescribes to us. And by the way, I've printed out Bible verses just on the poor. Just not, not the hurting or any of that or the sick, just the poor. What does the Bible have to say with the poor? There's over 300 Bible verses that prescribe to us the mandate, the biblical mandate to look out for the poor. That's just the poor, over 300 Bible verses. So if we're saying, all right, I wanna grow in that, how do I do it? This passage right here gives us two things that you must, must, must have in place to grow in this. Number one is this, you have to have a right view of who God is. You have to have a right view of who God is. Think of what he says here. Verse five, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Think about something. God made a promise to Israel that they were gonna be a nation so big and so numerable that it's the stars of the sky. You wouldn't even be able to count them. And this promise that was gonna come through the nation, God made that promise. Let me ask you, honestly, how faithful does God look at that particular time in history? There is no Israel. They've been carried off into captivity. Does it look like God has protected and preserved and kept things? I mean, I know we go all Christian on that and go, no, we know the story. It was their sin. But for the average guy who's been carried off into captivity and maybe was born into this captivity, who it wasn't his specific sin that put them there, how faithful do the promises of God look in that moment? And yet despite the circumstances that are going around, what is Nehemiah's prayer? You are faithful, you are compassionate, and you keep your promises. That is a powerful prayer. For a guy in that situation, that is a powerful, that is a prayer based on a realization of joy in God that exceeds the circumstances that you're in. That he would make that kind of prayer. God, you are faithful. You keep your promises. You will do what you say. That is a right understanding of who God is. But coupled with that, there also needs to be, and this is the second thing, a right understanding of who we are. Because you know what else he says in that prayer? We sinned. And then he owns it himself. Even I and my household have sinned against you. And I'll tell you, if you want to grow in compassion to others, then you ask God to give you a greater and greater revelation of your own sinfulness and your own shortcomings and your own failures. Because if you don't, if you start, this is what can start happening. Say you're raising your children and they're super well-behaved kids. And if you start thinking it has something to do with you, not the fact that God keeps promises, not the fact that God is gracious, but you start thinking it has something to do with you, well, then it's going to be really difficult to be compassionate towards families who aren't raising well-behaved children because what you tend to do is go, look, I nailed it because I did this, this, and this. And if they would just do this, they wouldn't have that problem. And so it's really hard to become compassionate when that's our mindset. Whether that, and that could be finances. Like, let's be honest, how many of us have seen a guy standing on a street corner holding a sign and said, if you'd have just studied in school like I did, if you would go out and apply for a job like I did, if you would go do some of those things like I did, you wouldn't be in that situation. And we don't tend to reach for our wallets when those thoughts are going through our mind. Oh, but Jeff, they don't all deserve it. Some of those people have cars and houses around the corner and they're just taking advantage of you. I'm not talking about who deserves what. I'm talking about just the reality that God wants his people to grow in compassion. Sometimes you should give whether you think or whether you're convinced that they really deserve it or not, not because they deserve it, but because you need it. You need to give because we need to grow in compassion. 
But, but if we start thinking that we have it dialed and that's the reason that we're in the situation we are, and we're not longer trusting and recognizing God's mercy on our lives, you're not gonna grow in compassion. You're gonna grow in religion and legalism and judgmentalism and attitude, and you're gonna be mean eventually. That's the reality, because that's what happened to Israel. We are God's favorite because we have the law of Moses and we have the temple and we have the sacrifices and we have all the stuff that God told us to do and all those pagans out there and they grew so, they, they, they grew so far from the compassion that God wanted. Next thing you know, the priests who are supposed to be the leaders are walking through with their robes pulled because God forbid they should even brush up against someone who's dirty or poor or a foreigner. And that couldn't be farther from the heart of God. So have you ever wondered, man, Jeff, why is Heritage always talking about the fact that we're fallen? Because it is a pivotal and integral part of the grace of God and the understanding of the gospel. And because we are. Because, again, the idea is not this rabid individualism that our country's known for. The idea is that as you grow with Christ, you should grow more and more in understanding of your own failures and more and more independence on his grace to cover you. And when you do that, you, are guaranteed, you will become a more compassionate person because you understand how much you need God's compassion as well. So I wanna take an opportunity right now. Will you guys all bow your heads and close your eyes? And let's do our own individual diagnostic for two minutes before we close here. <clears throat> what happens in your heart? What's your gut reaction when you see the poor? When you see the needy? when you see the lower class? What does news from overseas of, str of struggles of others do? Does it drive you to your knees? Does it evoke feelings of compassion? Or is it just another news day that we've just sort of become isolated from because we hear it so often or because we're so safe? Are you more quick in your own heart to wanna reach out to help someone else? or to find reasons to justify why you don't have to reach out to help someone else. Have we grown myopic or calloused to the hurt and brokenness in the world, or drawn to it in the way God was drawn to us in our difficulty? These are difficult questions to wrestle with, but I assure you, these are God-type questions to wrestle with. Now, God wants us to enjoy the blessings he's given us. And I don't advocate a poverty theology that means that the poorer you are, the closer you are to God, so give everything away. He gives to his children because he desires to bless them. But at the same time, the blessings of God should not stop with us. And the heart of God is that the people of God would be the arms of God to the people that don't know God and to the body of Christ as well. So it's good for us, it is healthy for us, even when it's uncomfortable for us, to stop and check our own heart and to say with the psalmist, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Are your blessings stopping with me or am I a healthy vessel for your grace, not just to my family, not just to my church, but to the world around us? And may God have compassion and rescue us from the silliness that is us. God, we know that you have not called us to just attend church. You've called us to be the church. 
God, you have not called us to some club where there's benefits to our, our, our membership and we just bask in them, but Lord, you've given us a mission. We have not arrived, we've been sent. And Lord, this, this particular calling can look really different for each person here, Lord. I'm not advocating some sort of uh, uh, mass movement or, or any of this, but Lord, on an individual basis, I know that you have callings and uses for all of us and then for us as a church corporately. So God, will you make us more compassionate? Will you, Lord, create in us the kind of heart for others that Nehemiah had when he heard his brothers were struggling? God, may we become those who are even moved to emotion by the pain and suffering of those around us. God, will you help us not to become favorites, but to understand your favor, your grace on our lives and our need for your grace. And I pray, God, for these people here, whatever it is you may have for them individually and for us as a church, God, will you create in us a heart of compassion for those around us. May it resonate with people around us. But Lord, not just for our own glory, but Lord, as you say in Matthew 5, Lord, may this be that others see our good works, that they might glorify you in heaven. Because you are the giver of all good things, Lord. And God, our motivation for this is not to be better Christians. Our motivation is an understanding of our great need of compassion from you. That we're following in the example of our Lord and King. And I pray, God, that there would be a gospel-centeredness to any outreach and any mercy and any compassion that goes on, Lord, because if there's not, we'll become prideful even in that. As we reach out to serve others, we'll just become arrogant and prideful in our service of others. So God, rescue us from us, Lord. And I pray that you would be glorified in everything. And really all we can say is like Isaiah, here am I, send me. Will you show us what we're to do? Lord, I pray your blessing on these guys tonight. May you just be with them and encourage their hearts. And, and may you just continue to grow us more and more into the type of church you desire us to be. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great night. Again, be in prayer for our church. Be in prayer for these things. Don't don't let this be one of those Wednesday night things that you just go home and it was another teaching you took and now you move on to the next thing. But truly wrestle with the Lord in this and say, Lord, are there areas, are there people around me I need to be reaching out? Am I giving in the way I should? Am I moved in the way I am? And Lord, help us to become that kind of compassionate people. But at the same time too, in all honesty, Lord, give us wisdom in what to do with that compassion as well, that we might also be stewards of the blessings that you give us. Amen. Lord bless you guys. Go ahead and read ahead in Nehemiah. It's a great read, and we'll keep digging in. God bless.